Well, thanks very much, Richard, uh, and thanks everyone for coming on this wonderful Indian summer's Saturday afternoon. Um, it's uh, very nice and toasty here, so I hope I'm going to keep you awake in, the, in this afternoon. Um, it's a real, real pleasure to be here. I've been uh, sort of tracking the traces of Robert Clive since around the year 2000, and I've never been here before. Um, he was baptised here, I suppose, in this, this font, and he's buried here somewhere. Somewhere. There's a, there's a plaque up there to him, and he's, he's all around his, his, his family. So uh, this is a very, very special place uh, to, to, to talk to you about uh, Robert uh, Clive. He was born um, this day, so it's his birthday today as well. So good timing, good timing. 20, 29th of September, 1725. And then he died uh, in London's West End in Berkeley Square, aged just 49 years old. Um, and by, in that time, I think he can well be said to become one of England's most fated and also most hated uh, men. Uh, he became Clive of India. And he's also the person most associated with the British East India Company, um, the greatest corporation in the world. Or as popularly known, John Company, which came from the Indian Jahan, meaning great, the great, uh, the great company. What I'd like to do with a few slides uh, is sort of go through this, this history of the company from 1600 to 1850 um, and think about its legacy for today, because I think there are many, many echoes of today. And I'll touch on Robert Clive. He has a really big part in this, uh, particularly around the Battle of Passy, in the middle of the story. Sadly, uh, Reverend Richard, I'm not going to answer all these questions about here in Shropshire. I guess you guys are going to tell me all about that. And the great thing about the East India Company is whenever I talk or meet with people, I always learn lots. And I've already learned more. Paul told me about uh, the links with Pezzas. So, so thanks so much, uh, Paul. So I, I'm going to kick off. I'm going to be focusing mostly, as I say, on Robert Clive as a corporate executive, which is, which is what he was uh, for most uh, of his life. So East India Company. This is its crest, its logo. It was founded by the Royal Charter from Queen Elizabeth in 1600, and importantly, had a monopoly of all trade uh, with Asia. Uh, this was a time where England was a fairly marginal country, just about 2% of global uh, economy. Uh, and then it was nationalised 258 years later by Queen Victoria, um, 160 years ago this year. This year, and by that time, Britain was much bigger, much more important. We had the Industrial Revolution, but it was now about a tenth of the global economy. And I think the, you could say the East India Company had quite a hand in that growth in the British uh, economy. It really revolutionised lifestyles. We've got the Ginger and Spice Festival today. It's set off to bring back spices, uh, nutmeg and pepper and others. Uh, it brought in textiles, particularly cotton textile from India, which really revolutionised. How many of us are wearing cotton? Yeah? We would be pretty naked uh, without it. They brought cotton uh, into Britain. And also, famously, tea from China. It was the mother of the modern multinational, which is how I came in, into looking at this. It had uh, a board of directors, uh, it had annual general meetings, it had shares, it had share price bubbles, share price busts, uh, and also it had a great network of global trading relations. But it wasn't just a normal company like today. It wasn't just a Tesco. It had its own private army. Uh, and with its private army, it used it to conquer large parts of, of India. Its key product, tea, was also the product that sparked the American War of Independence at the Boston Tea Party. And it also was the company that produced the opium for the opium trade with China, which eventually uh, opened up that country to foreign uh, trade. 
So I think we can safely say the East India Company really did change the course of economic history and importantly reverse the flow of wealth from west to east. Normally in economic history, wealth has flowed from west to east. In the Roman times, it flows from west to east, always flowing from west to east. And the company was at that point where it started coming another way, coming back uh, to us uh, in Europe. So I was fascinated by this. I've been working uh, in uh, India, in Bangladesh, looking at the economic relations there. Uh, and so when I came to work in the city of London in 2000, I was expecting to find a little blue plaque uh, at the point of the company's headquarters. And this is what I saw. This is uh, the Lloyds building. You may have seen it. It's a fantastic, glamorous, steel glass building, the Lloyds Insurance Building, on Lindhall Street uh, in the city of London. And this was the site where East India House uh, was, was based uh, from 1648 to 1858, so 200 years. And I expected to see a little blue plaque saying, here was the site of the East India Company, quite important company, and that's it, full stop. Nothing. And I thought this was a bit odd. Uh, I thought this was a very strange invisibility, particularly when I talked uh, to people in India, in Bangladesh, uh, and China, who always had something on their lips about what uh, the company said, and particularly when I was visiting textile factories in Bangladesh. I asked uh, one of the textile owners of the factory, he said, so what's this East India Company then? He said, these are the people who chopped off our weavers' thumbs. And I thought, hang on, I'm a historian. I'm an eco-historian. No, I never heard of it. So what, what's this? So this, this sort of factory owner, he was, he was not a historian, immediately had this, this image in his mind. Whereas when I talk to most people, they say, oh, well, maybe they did something with spices. A very, 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 very vague sense. So that's what took me on this, this sort of journey, really, to find out more about the East India Company, uh, what it was, uh, what it did, uh, and, and the, the legacy for, for today. So I've been really tracking Robert Clive and others around the world, in London, other parts of the UK, into Europe, in India, and in, in China. And I think it still lives. It still lives in our consciousness. I'm quite interested, actually, about how it's coming back into our culture. You might have seen this uh, TV programme called Taboo. Um, it was a bit violent for me. I, I think a bit gory. Uh, but again, it was interesting how East India Company had been sort of recreated. Uh, I think it's this sort of somewhat uh, sort of sinister corporation which is trying to control uh, London. Others in India are trying to reimagine uh, the company, uh, and I'll come back to that at the end. The cursor PowerPoint has now struck. Ah, there we go. So, this is how it all began. So this is actually not how it all began, but this is the company's headquarters, uh, 1648 uh, to, uh, to, from 1648 to about the 1730s. Uh, so you can see a sort of typical kind of uh, Tudor uh, building. This was the most important uh, piece. This was the door, which was hobnailed. Uh, because inside they had all the stores of bullion, which would be shipped east to buy all the, all the, uh, the, the, the spices uh, to start off with. And as you can see, a nice big uh, statement on the front saying, what does this company do? We do ships, okay? We do ships. We are the major trading organisation uh, in uh, London. Um, at that time, the Mughal Empire governing northern India and the uh, Ming Empire in China were really the heart of the global economy. And this was what Europeans wanted to get access to. Very sophisticated, very luxury goods. The porcelains of China, the silks, the textiles, the spices, uh, as I said. 
Um, the East India Company was set up in the wake of the Dutch. The Dutch had found really uh, the route uh, to get to the Spice Islands and before them uh, the Portuguese. As I say, it was granted a monopoly. This was very, very controversial uh, because it was a monopoly of a particular group of people and they were London merchants. So you can imagine how every other merchant and port outside of London, uh, Bristol and other ports, felt about this. In fact, the East India Company's full name was uh, the Governor and Company of Merchants of London trading with the East Indies. So for 200 years after that, other ports were trying to get access to this business. It wasn't just a monopoly company, it was a monopoly company of London. And you can imagine how the other parts of the, uh, the country uh, felt about that. Now, when the company was set up, uh, it was set up to trade with what we now think of Indonesia and, 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 and that, that sort of area. And the East Indies had nothing to do with India at all. Uh, that came much, much, much later. Uh, and the initial focus was uh, the Spice Islands, uh, Indonesia, uh, particularly pepper from Java, uh, cloves from the Moluccas, as well as mace and nutmeg from the Banda Islands. So that was the initial uh, focus. But the company was outcompeted by the Dutch, who were just bigger, better financed, and simply just more brutal uh, than the English. There was a massacre of English uh, merchants uh, by the Dutch uh, in 1623 in Ambon. Uh, and in 1667, uh, so Charles II's time, um, the East India Company gave up its base um, on the nutmeg island of Rum, uh, which was exchanged uh, as part of a treaty with the Dutch. And so this island of Rum in this area was exchanged for the American uh, fort called New Amsterdam, which is then named New York. Uh, and I wonder who got the better deal. <laughs> so that was where the company was starting, really looking at spices, and, and it only started really thinking about India, where it's made its great fortune, when it started realising India could produce lots of very, very high-quality, cheap cottons which you could buy to trade for spices. And then it realised, actually, it might as well trade in these cottons more directly and bring those back uh, to, to, to Europe. Now, the key part of the East India Company's uh, focus and real uh, prize was its technology. This is a picture of the uh, docks in Blackpool. You'll notice its flag here, which has the St George Cross here, and then the stripes. Um, I thought it was an internet myth that this is the basis of the stars and stripes of the US. It turns out to be true. It turns out to be true. So the East India Company flag is apparently the basis of the Stars and Tribes uh, of the US. Now, the great advantage that the East India Company had, one was it was actually a very well-organised corporation, unlike a lot of the, uh, the sort of very individual empires in Asia, and it had this technology. This technology, as it grew over time, was very, it, was, it was really would have been seen as the, sort of the Amazon or the Google of its age. It was a technology company, very high-tech, very impressive, and these, these ships really ruled uh, the oceans, enabling them uh, to gain access to the, the, the coast, coastlines of India, set up its own, its own cities, um, first in Bombay, uh, which it get, got granted as, a, as part of uh, the marriage uh, uh, arrangements of Charles II. Catherine Braganza in her dowry came with Bombay, which was very nice. I don't know if it fits in her handbag, but that's why nice things come in, in your marriage. And he passes on to the East India Company, then Madras, which is known as Chennai on the East Coast, uh, Calcutta. So we set up all these trading posts, um, and these would be uh, the, the ships which would guard roads. And the Asian uh, empires, very powerful, very big, 
very rich, and very weak in naval technology. And so this was really the clinching power of uh, the East India Company. But it is also a company. Uh, this is a, a picture of the company's uh, share price from the 1700s. That very, very, very tall spike is the South Sea bubble. So if we think about all the sort of the chaos in financial markets that we see often in our days, nothing to the South Sea bubble. This was quite extraordinary. And the East India Company's shares went up with the South Sea bubble and, and came down. This was what I call the Bengal bubble. This was the company's own bubble, which I'll go, in, go into. And what happened to the company's share price after uh, Clive's victory at Plassey uh, and after his capture of, of Bengal. So the shares went whoop. And then, some, so then they went down again. And I'll explain about that. Uh, and then this was the final uh, month of the company's, when the company's shares were traded, April 1874. Uh, and then the company's shareholders were able to exchange £100 of shares for £200 of cash from the British government because uh, it had been uh, nationalised. So this really was what the company uh, was, uh, was about. Um, the other East India companies at the time, the Portuguese was totally state-controlled, the Dutch was sort of half-state, half-private, uh, but the British was really very, very, it was private enterprise. Uh, and although it did uh, eventually create the basis for the British Empire in India, it didn't set out to create an empire. It set out to make money. Make money for its shareholders, make money for its executives, and actually, conquest was just a very effective way of making money. So that was the, this is a company we, we, should, uh, we should remember. There were three uh, big joint stock companies of that age. The South Sea Company, which crashed. The East India Company here. And then also the Bank of England, strange enough. That was also a share price, share-owned uh, corporation. It wasn't nationalised until 1945. And this is the, the world, we think. This is the world of the company. Uh, so up here in London, uh, sending out the bullion, as I, as I say. At that time, this was really before the Industrial Revolution, so really not much that Britain had, which was desired in Asia. So lovely, thick woolen cloth didn't really sell too much in the tropical climates of, of the East. So largely sending out silver uh, and, and sometimes cloth, sometimes metals, uh, to here, to, to the East Indies, uh, to, to India, to Bombay, Madras, Calcutta, and then to uh, Canton, uh, which was the only port which China opened to foreigners. It was very, China was very, very cautious about letting foreigners into its markets. It feared they might uh, take over. And then all this, these products would come back uh, and then be re-exported into Europe. Uh, the cottons would be traded into Africa, often in, in barter, in the slave trade, and then export, exported re, uh, across the Atlantic to uh, the English colonies on the, on the uh, east coast there, so to Boston, New York, and, and, and so on. So this was really the company's uh, world. And, and if you can, in your imagination, really bringing together three big river uh, bases, the Thames, uh, the Ganges in India, and then the Pearl River, the Pearl River here, which links Canton and also uh, Hong Kong. So, hopefully that gives you a sense of the context, starting in 1600, uh, royal monopoly, trying to break into these uh, markets of the East, uh, shareholder control, and, and, and being very powerful in this uh, technology. I'd like you to sort of have in your mind um, that we're now in 1756, 
Um, and he, we're going to talk about him for the next few minutes because he plays a very pivotal role. This is a picture of uh, Calcutta. So we have the company ships here, and we have Fort William behind, uh, which was the, the, the fort, uh, which was the base uh, for the company's uh, operations. This was set up in 1690. It was a company town, uh, and we, think, we often think of company, Lever, Lever, uh, Port Sunlight or something. This was Port Sunlight um, in, in India. This was a company uh, town. Um, and this was where the company would source, particularly the textiles, which were so valued. So these were textiles, bandanas, calicos, chintzes, dungarees, ginghams, seersuckers, taffetas. All these wonderful cloths would be bought from the weavers by the company and shipped back to, to Europe, where they would be really sort of rapturously received. Daniel Defoe describes how these textiles crept into our wardrobes, crept into our ladies' chambers. These were very, very sensual things when you had rough wool. This, these were fantastic. fantastic things. And the company shareholders made an absolute fortune. Absolute fortune. And there were riots, not surprisingly, of some of the weavers in London against these cheap Asian imports. So as I say, the problem really with the company's business model is that lots of people in, in, in Europe wanted its stuff. But actually, not many people in Asia wanted Europe's products. So they had to ship out uh, silver and bullion. Uh, and one of the writers of the time, of Clive's time, described Bengal, where Calcutta was based, as the sink where gold and silver disappears without the least expectation of return. And this was seen as a real uh, problem. So the company was always finding, trying to find a way of avoiding shipping out bullion. How could it avoid shipping out bullion? It's very, very precious uh, stuff. Its, its relations with India were governed by a trade treaty with the Mughal Empire called a, a Firman. And actually, the Mughal, Mughals were quite in, uh, generous. They actually uh, gave duty-free exports. I don't know if that's a Canada Plus style deal. It was, it was a pretty good deal. Anyway, it's a pretty good deal. No duty. No duty, so they could trade uh, and so on. On their exports... Uh, but the company also wanted to engage in the domestic trade in India. They wanted to trade internally, because that was, a, that was a big market. And so they actually started trading internally, which was essentially uh, tax evasion. They were trying to evade uh, taxes. The local uh, ruler of Bengal, uh, the Nawab, who often called the Nabob, uh, Sir Roger Duller, um, actually complained and said, look, I want you to pay your taxes. Um, why have you got this huge great fort? You're just merchants. You can rely on me. I'll protect you. And by the way, you've got one of my political enemies hiding in that fort, so I want him returned. The East India Company refused to take down their fort. They refused to stop uh, evading taxes. And uh, the, the result was the Bengal forces took Calcutta. Uh, and that was a time where this incident called the Black Hole of Calcutta uh, uh, happened. So 1756... Uh, about 100 people, um, largely men, uh, were pushed overnight into a very, very small place, and most of them sort of died overnight. Very, very nasty circumstances. At the time, it didn't cause much upset in the British uh, camp. Um, in fact, one MP in Parliament said, isn't that really what happens at the Roundhouse on a Saturday night? So that was not really the main focus. It became a big thing later on. The main focus was that Bengal, Calcutta, the company's main subsidiary in India had been, over, had been taken. And, and this was a worth about a half of the company's share capital. This was a complete corporate disaster. And who was put at the head of the mission to recapture Bengal? 
none other than our local hero, uh, Robert Pine. And he succeeded this at the Battle of Plassey, which is, uh, which is set out uh, here. Um, so when Calcutta was taken, uh, Robert Clive was already in Madras, so to the south-east, uh, and he had first uh, been sent out to India as a young clerk in 1744, as a, as a teenager, young man, <coughs> as a clerk, and hadn't been particularly successful, and had really blundered into the company's private army, untrained as a soldier, but proved to be incredibly brave and very successful in fending off uh, uh, the, the enemies of the company, particularly in South India, French and local uh, nobility. So by 1756, um, he was something of a star. Um, he had earned enough from the company to pay off the mortgage of his, of his house near here, Steitch uh, Hall, I think it is. Um, and he returned to India as a deputy governor of Fort St. David and a colonel as well. So he became the brains behind this battle. Battle of Plassey really seen as the pivotal point where the company really starts controlling uh, India. Now, on one side, you have the, the troops of Bengal, 50,000 troops, lots of troops, uh, lots of elephants. And the other side, you have perhaps just about 3,000 uh, company troops, both Europeans uh, and, and Indians. Um, and the company won. But it wasn't really a battle. Yes, they fought a little bit. Um, but actually, it can be seen as the company's best business deal. Uh, and to win the battle, Clive bribed two key figures on the uh, Bengal side. The first of these was known as Amir Chand, or Umichand, and you can think of him as the original Mr. Five Percent. Now, he found out that Clive was, was plotting uh, to, to take over to control, um, and he threatened to reveal all these secrets to the Bengal side, unless Clive gave him 5% of the Bengal treasure, which was a lot of money. Clive was pretty desperate and, and said, OK, yeah, he wrote two, two deals with Omichand. Um, one was on red paper, which included the 5%, and one was on white paper, which did not. That was what Omichand paid for, gave, gave his support uh, and came to collect his 5%. And Robert Clive picked up the white uh, paper and said, sorry, guy, this is, this is the real treaty. Now, Amitran was a bit angry about this. The great thing about Amitran is he had a great faith in British justice. He actually took a court case against Robert Clive and East India Company for enabling on his deal, which is rather odd, seeing so it was a deal to betray his country. So he didn't win. He didn't win. And he died a very uh, unhappy uh, man. The second uh, piece of very, uh, very cunning uh, uh, corruption uh, was with this man here, who was Mir Jaffa, who was uh, a general in the Bengal forces, so actually much more key in the course of the battle. And he, again, agreed to defect to, uh, to Rob Clive and, and the British side, as long as he could be put on the throne, get rid of Sarad Abdullah, and put me uh, on, on the throne. So here is Clive, after the battle, uh, uh, talking with Mir Jaffa. Now, I don't know how many of you have been to Bengal, or know people of Bengali extraction, but if, if anyone is called Amir Jaffa, that is the most terrible, terrible term of abuse. It's a traitor. The worst, worst type of betrayal is to be Amir Jaffa because he is he attempts to sold his nation to uh, to uh, Robert uh, Clive. So Clive uh, went to the Bengal capital, Mashidabad, and uh, loaded up the treasury. Didn't give the five percent to Amir Chand, 
and took it downriver to uh, Calcutta. Apparently, it was about 100 boats. Now, in 18th century money, this was about 2.5 million um, directly in, in terms of, of, of cash uh, for the company and about £230,000 for, for Clive himself. So this was about a quarter of a billion pounds for the company in one deal and Clive got 25 million quid out of Blackpool Classic. Uh, and that wasn't just, that was just, that was just the, sort of the prize money as it were. The company obviously now controlled a lot of land in Bengal uh, and, and so on. So one of the reasons why many people dislike Clive at the time is they were simply jealous. He had become rich quick, <coughs> very rich quick, and particularly aristocrats uh, didn't, uh, didn't like it. And this is pretty sensational stuff. I mean, you've got here, you've got a private company um, controlling really the richest province of one of the major empires uh, of the world. Clive obviously was very excited about this after Plassey, uh, and he wrote back to the company directors in uh, Lednall Street, uh, this great revolution so happily brought about seems complete in every respect. And by revolution, I think he meant the changing of the re regime, the changing of the guard. So not just one prince for another, but really one regime for another. So one was a domestic Indian government, and now you had one backed uh, by the company. Uh, and in many ways, I think this revolution, to use Clive's term, can be seen as equally significant as the French Revolution and the American Revolution, also of the 18th uh, century. But this was really just the start of Clive. Clive was a very, very smart player. This is his real masterstroke. Here is Clive again, and here now is the uh, Mughal Emperor, uh, Shah Alam. Clive had returned to London after the Battle of Plassey. He, he had been fated uh, by, by London. He was the heaven-born uh, general. Uh, uh, and uh, he was then sent back uh, to, uh, to, uh, to India as a, as a baron, uh, Baron Clive of Plassey, although there was a sting in the tail, but this was an Irish baronetcy. So it was sort of somewhat sort of second rate. I'm not quite sure why he didn't get the, sort of the full one. But anyway, this was the real deal that, uh, that really uh, changed uh, the, the, the situation of the company. So Plassey, the company had just placed their puppet on the throne, but they didn't actually run things. The Mughal Empire was then, was then weakening, was losing power, and it realised that the company was the real player in uh, this part of India, in Bengal. So it handed over the so-called Diwani. This was the internal, this was the sort of internal revenue, the, 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 uh, the national revenue service, so control of all taxes, all control of all taxes and spending. Uh, and so the company had to collect the taxes, uh, pay the, the emperor a bit for, for his upkeep, uh, and then they could get, keep the rest. Uh, and by my account, it left the company with about 49%. So of £100 of tax, £49 were kept by the East India Company. This was extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. And if you could manage, imagine that, again, a company today took over the taxation system of a country with no oversight whatsoever, what would happen uh, next. This was really exciting for the company's shareholders because they were going to get this huge wall of money uh, coming into their coffers. They could now buy all the goods of Bengal, all those lovely taffetas, those chintzes and everything, with Bengal's own money. It was a fantastic deal. Yeah, they didn't have to ship any bullion anymore. They used the Bengal's own taxes to buy Bengal's textiles. Uh, and the Gentleman's Magazine in London, when they heard of this, wrote, uh, wrote this. 
The prodigious value of these new acquisitions may open to this nation, England, such a mine of wealth as not only to pay off the national debt, take off the land tax, ease the poor of burdensome taxes, but to add to the dividend as will astonish Europe. And if you remember that, that share price graph, Europe was astonished, the shares uh, bounced. And as I say, this was a business deal. This was an acquisition. Robert Clive, on behalf of the company, had acquired the Diwali, the taxes of the richest province of Asia, and was making 49% from every £100. This uh, deal led to what was known as the unrequited uh, trade. Uh, so uh, as in unrequited love, uh, this was uh, unrequited trade. As I say... The company was using the taxes of India to pay for the goods uh, of India. The company, there was no constraint on the company. It could push out all its competitors, the French, the Dutch, the Portuguese. It could push down the prices for the, the cottons. And this is where the stories of the company uh, chopping off the thumbs of weavers emerge, although I didn't find any uh, hard evidence of that. But that's certainly a, sort of a popular uh, myth in, in, in parts uh, of India. This is a press on uh, the company's uh, warehouses in London, just by Liverpool Street Station, which still exists, huge six-storey warehouses. And you can see around here some of the, the goods which were stored in there. Um, and these warehouses were essentially now holding the tribute of India, because you had the, ta the taxes raised in Bengal, they buy the textiles, and the textiles would then be sent back to London. And this was essentially tribute. It wasn't really... Uh, trade uh, any, anymore. This was the unrequited uh, trade. So, as I mentioned before, uh, this was the time of the company's uh, Bengal bubble, the share price soaring uh, here. Um, and uh, in fact, Clive, as I say, was a very smart guy. Just before he signed that Diwani with Shah Alam, you remember the, the deal, a couple of slides back, he wrote to his broker back in London and said, Buy as many East India Company shares as you can. They're going to go up. Um, bit of insider trading, but I don't think there were laws against it at the time. He was just uh, he was out for out for the main uh, the main market. So the share price peaked, as you can see here, March 1769. Uh, uh, that was the time when news arrived in the south of India, Hyder Ali of Mysore, had attacked the company's uh, operations. Uh, and this began uh, the crash in the company's share price. It would fall by about half and would not recover its price for about another 40 uh, years. This share price crash uh, combined with a credit crunch, a bank failed, the company was very overstretched, and by the September 1772, uh, the company was begging the government for a bailout, which it got. Um, and crucially for the shareholders, the dividend was halved, and then eliminated. So this was terrible. The shareholders had no dividends, the share price had half, they're begging the government for, for a bailout, uh, and this was a catastrophe. But in Bengal, there was another catastrophe, uh, and this was a, a famine. In 1769, there was a drought. Many times uh, there were droughts in India, but this turned to, to famine. There was no uh, famine relief anymore. There was no one really looking after the company. Uh, the company's officers went into the markets, bought up the grain, and actually the company raised taxes. So it was looking after the taxes. It saw that there was a famine. If it was going to keep the same value of the taxes, 
it needs to raise the rate of the taxes so it could keep the same revenue. So this is, again, I don't think they were doing it from an, in an evil sense. They were just trying to operate like a company. One of the writers of the time, Horace Walpole, uh, wrote, we have murdered, disposed, plundered, you so what thinking of the famine in Bengal in which three millions perished caused by a monopoly of provisions by the servants of the East Indies. So what he means is the company had bought up all the available uh, grain. Uh, all this is coming out unless gold that inspired these horrors could quash them, which was the real fear of many at the time. The company was become so powerful it would manage to uh, suppress any form of oversight. This photograph is actually, uh, this picture is actually from 1876, so not from uh, 1770, obviously, uh, which was another famine. And one of the sadnesses about the British um, experience in India is you could say that the uh, British rule started with a famine in 1770 and ended with one in 1943 uh, during the Second World War. Now, the heaven-born general, Robert Clive, his, his reputation suddenly plummeted like the share price. He was now known as Lord uh, Vulture. Here he is, uh, surrounded by the East India uh, directors, and seeing a vision of uh, East India merchants, ghosts, coming to collect their dues, um, and seeing that he was, uh, he had expro expropriated them, uh, and, 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 so, and so on. Um, as I say, there was outrage. This was in the, in, in, in the press. There were plays written about the company. The nabobs were seen as the yuppies of, of the time. Um, and uh, there was a parliamentary inquiry. Whenever there's a problem in Britain, have a parliamentary inquiry. It will sort it out. So Clyde was hauled into Parliament. Um, and he was very robust. He was very robust. Uh, defended himself of all the charges of, sort of self-dealing, of corruption, and so on. And there's a lovely passage where he defended himself uh, in Parliament. And, he, and he, he said this, Consider the situation in which the victory of Plassey had placed on me. A great prince was dependent upon my pleasure. An opulent city lay at my mercy. Its richest bankers bid against each other for my smiles. I walked through vaults which were thrown open to me alone, piled on either hand with gold and jewels. My God, my chairman, at this moment I stand astonished at my own moderation. So he wasn't going to apologise or give way or, or anything. Uh, there was actually a, a vote on whether he had uh, broken jewel, rules, uh, whether he had uh, uh, traded uh, illegally and so on. But actually, very early uh, in the morning, uh, the par Parliament actually voted uh, on his uh, behalf. But it doesn't stop uh, the march of parliamentary uh, intervention. As I say, many fear that the company is simply growing too big uh, and was going to really potentially control uh, the country. Uh, and people were worried about whether this was going to lead to uh, real constraints on, on liberty in the country. So they passed a what they called the Regulating Act, and it had three big uh, parts. First, the company got its bailout. Um, but in return for its bailout, the government could control the dividend. So that was the first loss of autonomy for the company. And secondly, the government had the right to appoint its own people to run Bengal, because clearly the company had been seen to be in completely incompetent to run this very, very prized uh, part of Bengal. The first uh, Governor General was Warren Hastings, who many of you have heard of and I'll touch on in a bit. So those are the first two uh, measures. And the third was seen to be 
really, really unimportant and wouldn't create any trouble. It was uh, the allowance of the company to ship tea directly to the Americas. So if you remember the map, the company sent out bullion, bought tea in Canton, shipped it back to London, and then it would be uh, auctioned at the company's uh, headquarters and then would be sent out by trade to Europe and, and so on. The company didn't trade directly with the Americans. The government was very keen to get its money back. It had given £1 million in bailouts, wanted to get its money back, wanted the company to make sure that it, all the tea it had stored could be sold. So, so you could sell it directly to America. Sounded like a good deal. The problem was, over in the Americas, there was a bit of a rebellion going on. No taxation without representation. In fact, that was actually actually fairly sort of bad odour, this, this, this um, uprising. It, wasn't that, it was actually uh, failing at the time. And then you have the emergence of this big uh, corporation with a very dodgy reputation uh, in India. It was a complete gift to the American patriots. And I was reading from what one of the pamphleteers called Rusticus uh, said about the company. Their conduct in Asia for some years past has given simple proof how little they regard the lives of nations, the rights, liberties, and laws of men. They have sacrificed millions for the sake of gain. So suddenly the company got embroiled in all these disputes in, uh, in the Americas. And the result, uh, as we know, is the Boston Tea Party. So 16 December 1773, 90,000 £90, pounds in weight of China tea bought with India money, owned by a British corporation, was dumped in an American harbour by people dressed as Indians. So if we think the globalisation is a new thing, think about uh, the, the Boston uh, Tea Party. So, Clive had escaped. Clive had escaped censure. He held on to his, uh, his riches, his mansions here in, in, in Shropshire, uh, in Surrey, and uh, in, uh, in the centre of London, in Berkeley Square, number 45, where he lived until his death in 1774. Um, and uh, lots of disputes about how he died. Um, many think it was uh, suicide. I think that's one of the reasons that actually he was, he was buried in an unmarked grave here. He was inside the church, but I think the church rules at the time that suicide was against God's law, um, and certainly was seen to be very, very uh, suspicious his death. He was very sick at the time, uh, probably had some form of uh, severe stomach uh, sickness, maybe cancer, so he could have had an overdose of opium uh, to sort of ease the pain of that. But anyway, he died in very suspicious uh, circumstances, um, and I think at the time, many people thought that he got his just desserts. Uh, it was very sad, he was very ill, young man, uh, Dr. Johnson uh, wrote, uh, Clive had acquired his fortune by such crimes that his, his consciousness of them impelled him to cut his own throat. So that's the voice of Dr. Johnson. Lots of disputes about whether he committed suicide. So a sad, uh, a sad end uh, for Clive. But for the company, things were picking up. Um, they paid off the bailout, uh, and they spruced up their company headquarters in Leadenhall Street and put this picture in their revenue room. And I, I don't know if you can see it, but it's an extraordinary picture of who they thought they were. Um, so maybe if I go over this side, I'll start here. So here up on the rock, you have Britannia, Fair Britannia, string of pearls, I think you can see that, lovely cloth all around, uh, Father Thames, a grumpy lion, and then in the middle you have the uh, company's uh, ship bringing all the riches of the East, 
you have a woman from India, you have a box of tea, uh, you have a Hindu man here, you have palm trees, you have camels, you have uh, Mercury, the god of commerce. So this was the sort of this was their image of who they saw they were. They they were really at the heart. Their ship here was at the heart of this global uh, global trade, mixing all these images of classical Rome with the exotics of of, of India. So things were picking up. Um, but as Adam Smith said, who was writing his Wealth of Nations at that time, and Adam Smith, the real champion of free markets, he described it just as a momentary fit of good conduct. And in fact, he added an extra chapter to the Wealth of Nations to describe how companies like East India Company were very dangerous uh, for the public good because they were monopolies. And also, he was very suspicious of the stock market. He thought it was too uh, speculative. So the company continued, really, to be in, in trouble. Uh, and really, for the next 50 years, it would be at the heart of politics. So this is, uh, I think, a lovely image of political football. Here you have the company's second uh, headquarters on, on, on Medal Street. Remember that sort of quaint, rather Tudor building before? This was a sort of stone building. And here you have Billy Blackbeard, which is William Pitt the Younger, and Charlie Blackbeard here, rather swarthy man, who's uh, Charles James Fox, the great Whig uh, champion. Uh, and you can see here, he was also a bit of a gambler. You can see his dice here, his cards all over the place. And they're playing with the East India Company. They're playing football with the East India Company. Who was going to win control of the East India Company? This huge source of wealth. Was it going to be the Tories? Was it going to be the Whigs? Um, and first, it was the Whigs. They passed a, a law in 1783 where they would remove all the company's directors and they would be replaced with Charles James Fox's friends. Um, and um, a lot of people thought this was, this was not a good idea. It passed through the Commons um, and it passed uh, through the Lords and then the Crown, the King, uh, uh, vetoed it. Um, and then there was an election. And surprise, surprise, um, William Pitt won. Uh, lots of allegations that company gold was being used to bribe the voters on that. So uh, the Whigs who, who wanted to, uh, I think, control the company, tame the company, maybe uh, take, take charge of the company, uh, they, they wanted to find another way to bring the company uh, to heel. So the next way was impeachment, uh, which is coming up again. I think uh, talk about Trump being impeached and various other things. And this is a form of political justice. It's a very odd form of justice where the charges have to be agreed by the lower house, so in our country, the House of Commons, and then the House of Lords turns into a court and they have to judge whether the people involved, people being impeached, are guilty of the crimes. Now, clearly, it's a pretty bonkers way of justice because politics comes in, yeah? So it depends whether you like the person uh, or not. Person on the camel is Warren Hastings, the first Governor General. He'd be sent uh, to clean up uh, um, India and Bengal. Uh, and he's a very interesting person, quite different from Clive. Clive was, I think, a very, uh, very uh, clear strategist, very cunning, uh, a military man. Uh, Warren Hastings wasn't military. He was a very, very uh, talented person. Uh, he had risen up through the company's uh, ranks. He was fluent in local languages. He translated the Hindu holy book, the Bhagavad Gita, uh, into English. He supported a school for Muslim students, uh, and he helped construct a sort of Buddhist temple uh, in Calcutta. So he was very open uh, to uh, the East. 
But he had a real problem. He had to actually uh, control the company in this situation, uh, and he had to uh, make money for the company's shareholders. So he was the first to try and smuggle uh, opium into uh, China. He kidnapped uh, the royal family of a neighbouring uh, power, and he squeezed uh, taxes ever higher. higher. Thomas Babington Macaulay, the historian, described it like this. It was absolutely necessary for him to either disregard the moral discourses of, uh, of, of his employers or their demands for money. He chose to neglect the sermons and find the repeat. So he was charged for high crimes and misdemeanors. Uh, here's uh, Edmund Burke here. Here again is, is um, Charles James Fox. Like Clive before him, Hastings uh, got off. The impeachment trial went on for seven years, 1788 to 1795. A quite important event had in the middle of that, the French Revolution, 1789, so things in India weren't as important, uh, and Warren Hastings uh, escaped. Really, he was, I think, the last person you could really say was really connected to the merchant's heart of the East India Company. It was now a real anachronism. You had this company still trading, but ruling, and how could actually a company do those two things? How could you actually think about the welfare of people under your control, and also maximise returns from your shareholders. These are two very, very different uh, activities. So the person over here is uh, Duke Wellington of uh, Wellesley, um, who, who many, many of us know, the, the person who uh, Napoleon demeaned as being the Sepoy general, Sepoy as being the Indian troops. So he really gained his uh, spurs in, uh, in, in, in India. And on the right there is uh, Tipu Sahib, the uh, the ruler, the Sultan of Mysore, who was known for, as the terror of Leadenhall Street, the terror of the East India Company, the way he threatened the companies. Uh, companies uh, he was originally, he was over, uh, ultimately overthrown in 1799 to the end of the century by uh, Arthur Wellesley and his brother. Um, and I think it's really at that point that the soldiers took control of the East India Company. Back in London, uh, this was the sort of final, final version of the company's headquarters in Leadenhall Street. You may remember, again, that quaint version, the version which was being talked about uh, by, uh, by, the, by the two politicians. And now here is the company's final statement, 1799. We are a big, important institution. We have these lovely uh, Gre Grecian columns. And you can imagine many other buildings of that time which still exist. Uh, the British Museum, uh, Somerset House, uh, and, and so on. Inside there, as well as the clerks and so on who would be working on the company's accounts and trading and business, people like Charles Lamb, who you may have heard of, who was a friend of Coleridge and, and, and Wordsworth and so on, he worked there. James Mill, the historian, his son, John Stuart Mill, uh, worked as company executives there uh, for, for, for many years. And I think this is a, a real statement. The work I've done with business also tells you that there's a headquarters theory of company collapse. As soon as you bring a, build a glamorous headquarters, your doom is not far away. So this is, I think, was a start that they were sort of really at the end, end of, their, at the end of their, their, their period. This was perhaps the great uh, flourish of the company. These are the, the East India docks in the east end of London. Here is where the Millennium Dome, which we may remember, uh, was built. And again, this was an uh, extraordinary piece of technological uh, engineering. This was the, the mast house, which was built for these 800-ton uh, company uh, ships. 
Um, built in 1806, it really came, again, at the, at the end of the company's trading times. In 1813, finally, the company lost its monopoly, so all those other ports, all those other traders who have been held back now have the opportunity to trade freely, so Adam Smith's uh, theories came into, into practice. But by then, of course, by 1813, we had the Industrial Revolution. We had Lancashire. We had the mills. We had the factories. And so we had very, very productive cloth of our own. And with the uh, India now being a captive market, there was essentially a collapse of that domestic weaver, hand-weaving um, uh, operations in, in India. And the Governor General at the time, William Bentinck, said, the bones of the cotton weavers are breaching the plains of India. So this was really the first end of the company as a commercial operation, no longer trading to India. But it still had China. Still had China. And it still had tea. As I mentioned, it had been trading in tea uh, probably since the middle of the 16th, 17th century. Pepys described having the first cup of tea uh, in, the, in the middle of that, uh, middle of that century. And here is where the company really met its match. It was a monopoly, and it met a monopoly. As I say, China was very cautious about foreigners. And if you can see what the company did in India, quite right to be so. Quite right to be so. Um, and it only controlled, uh, it only allowed the company to come to Canton, or Guangzhou, for six months of the year. You couldn't stay there. You couldn't marry, uh, marry any local women. You couldn't learn the language. So you were completely controlled. Completely controlled. Um, and but the company had to do that because there's no other source of tea. Tea wasn't grown in, it, in India, tea certainly wasn't grown in Africa, wasn't grown in Sri Lanka, and, and so on. Uh, and so the company was again forced to pay silver bullion to get this tea, which of course was incredibly popular back in Europe, uh, back in the UK, and back in, um, in, uh, in, in the Americas. Uh, and again, the company had to find another way of paying for the tea. And the answer was this, opium. Patna Opium. Um, and here's the company's press. Now, Patna is a city in Bihar, which is to the west of Bengal. And as part of the conquest uh, achieved by Clive and Plassey, they gained control of Bihar, where the best opium in Asia comes from. Um, and that was controlled and controlled under monopoly under, under the company. Um, and this is something that China wanted. It was totally illegal to import it. For obvious reasons, the Chinese knew that it was addictive and could lead to major, major uh, social uh, problems. Um, so but the company realized there was a, a market in this. Warren Hastings, the good man who did bad things, he first tried to smuggle uh, opium into, into China, uh, but got, this was one of the charges in his uh, impeachment. Uh, and then uh, the company really went into industrial mode in the 19th uh, century. Uh, and so by 1826, the flows of opium into uh, China were enough to stop the flows of silver. So what happened, the opium was grown by farmers in, in, in Bengal and Bihar. It was then forced to be sold to the company at its auction. Uh, private traders would buy it, they would ship it to China, exchange it for silver, that would be deposited in uh, the company's treasury and they would buy China eventually got, uh, really wanted to, to stop this. Uh, this, was, uh, this was really ruining uh, the country. Um, uh, and uh, the, this was the result, the, the, the opium wars of the 19th uh, century. The company itself ceased trading to China in 1833. 
and was replaced by a new firm, some of them, Charlie Matheson, you might have heard. Uh, and these were real free traders, and their main business uh, was opium. And they got really, really annoyed they were seen as the main problem in the opium trade. Uh, and this is a lovely expression from William Jardine to his fellow, fellow uh, free traders. He said, we are not smugglers, gentlemen. It is the Chinese government, it is the Chinese officers who connive at and encourage smuggling. And then look at the East India Company. Why? The father, father and mother of all smuggling and smuggling is the East India Company, because they produce. 1839, the Chinese finally cracked down on, uh, on the trade. They destroyed the opium stocks are, are held in, in Canton. Uh, all stamped with the company's uh, logo. And the result was opium wars. Now, I'm a historian, and I thought the opium wars were a bit like maybe the slave trade. The slave trade had been banned, the Royal Navy went in to suppress the slave trade. And I thought again here that the opium trade was banned and the Royal Navy went in to suppress the opium trade. No, didn't happen like that. Opium was banned, the Royal Navy went in with the British, British Army to force um, China to accept this contraband trade. Um, as a result of the first opium war, um, in China gave up Hong Kong. Uh, and in the second uh, opium war in 1860, um, the Beijing was then captured, um, and then there was, opium was actually legalized across uh, China. By then, by 1860, the company itself was no more. Like that junk in the middle, it had been blown up. So we're now 1857, we're 100 years after the Battle of Plassey, uh, and uh, here is the execution of John Company, the blowing up. That ought to be in Leadenhall Street. John Company, as I say, the sort of affectionate term for the East India Company. The company no longer traded, no longer traded with India, no longer traded with China, but was essentially managing its operations in India on behalf of the British uh, states. It became increasingly arrogant. I think one of the things about the company was actually its trade, because its focus was trade, it actually played very little concern to cultural issues and so on, had very little racial differentiation and so on. As it ceased trading, many more divisions were put between uh, the, the English uh, and the Indians, much more uh, arrogant, and eventually had the, what's known as the Indian Mutiny, or in India, the first war of uh, Indian uh, independence. Benjamin Disraeli, the Prime Minister, just said that the company alienated or alarmed almost every influential class in India. Uh, originally, the sepoys, the Indian soldiers, rose up. New rifles had been greased either with pig or cow fat, which were uh, taboo for both the Hindus and the Muslims, and there was a full-scale uh, revolution. It was a very, very brutal uh, uh, fight, and eventually the British uh, overcame uh, the rebels. A particularly nasty practice in India was when, if you wanted to uh, sort of, uh, instill fear into your opposition, you would put a few uh, prisoners on the barrel of your your cannon and blow them to kingdom come. Very, very gruesome. But here the image from Punch, Punch magazine is that it's East India House, you remember that classical building which is being blown and its charges are of incompetence, of nepotism, blundering, avarice, misgovernment and supineness. The Mughal Empire came to the end uh, and so did uh, the East India Company. And these two serious old men were there as the company came to them. The one on the, the left is John Stuart Mill, who many of us might know of, liberal economist, uh, promoter of, of women's equality, 
but he worked for the East India Company for 35 years. That was his day job, and his philosophy and economics and liberal politics were his, his pursuits, which he really pursued after the East India Company came down. He was sent to Parliament uh, by, the East, by the East India Company to try and stop its nationalisation, stop its closure by Parliament, who was so enraged by its incompetence. He was a very brilliant man uh, in many ways, but also somewhat extraordinary. Uh, one of his colleagues wrote about this about how he operated in the office. When particularly inspired, he used, before sitting down to his desk, to not only strip himself of his coat and waistcoat, but of his trousers, and so set to work, alternately striding up and down and writing at great speed. So I've never had the image before John Stuart Mill without trousers going around doing the company's accounts. But it's a strange one. It's a strange one, I must say. But he was sent, this very, very uh, upright individual, very, very, very uh, brilliant man, to beg uh, the parliament to the state of uh, execution. And he said that a company had at their own expense and using their own civil and military powers acquired for this country a magnificent uh, uh, empire in the East with no cost to the Exchequer. So it was a free deal for the, for the states. They really let us continue. Uh, Parliament didn't, uh, didn't listen and uh, the company came to an end and the Raj began. Queen Victoria began direct rule of, of India. Person on the right, uh, Karl Marx, um, who obviously is known as the father of communism. Um, I think his communist theories are pretty bonkers, um, but his journalism is very good. His journalism is very racy, very spicy, and he was the London uh, correspondent of the New York Daily Tribune. And he wrote this about the company as, as it felt as it came to the end. The doom of the East India Company appears to be sealed. They do not die like heroes, it must be confessed, but they have been bartered away their power as they crept into it bit by bit, in a business-like way. So that's how the company ended in 1858. And then we come back to Mr. Clive. The end of the company in the 1850s really marked the end of the chartered corporation. East India House, that classical building, was knocked down in 1861. The company managed to negotiate a deal um, prior to the mutiny, which meant that its shareholders got dividend payments if there was any interruption to its business right up until 1874, which is a very good deal for the shareholders. Um, and then they, these, these shares were swapped for cash or Indian uh, government uh, debt. I think Clive's reputation was being fought over during the Victorian times. Clearly, he was seen as the, the person who had started the empire in India. But I think there were a lot of concerns about his so-called oriental practices, that he had won Plassey, essentially through uh, two acts of bribery, which didn't seem to be uh, particularly British. By the turn of the 20th century, however, I think uh, people again were thinking that, uh, that his reputation should be rehabilitated. Interestingly, this statue is put up uh, in uh, 1911. So again, just as the British Empire is starting to totter in India, just as people in Bengal are starting to talk about independence and so on. So really just at the end of the British rule, just as that's starting, there was again this uh, memory, memorial put up live in, in Whitehall. Uh, here's the treasury, here's the foreign office, and here's uh, the statue uh, of, of Clive. Lord Closen suggested this would be a good way of celebrating the 150th anniversary of Plassey. Uh, the Secretary of State for India, sitting in the left-hand building, John Morley, uh, tried to stop that. He thought the Clive, that Clive had created too many problems, and it would have been better for Britain not to have uh, controlled India. 
and wanted to put up a statue of Garibaldi, the Italian, instead. But that didn't, that didn't happen. So that still stands outside the Foreign Office today. I was then very interested to go to an exhibition earlier this month, in fact, held by Historic England, which was thinking about how we reflect on statues and memorials in our society. Um, and had this sort of quite interesting uh, picture whereby they were thinking about the shadow of Clive, which is here, and it has lots of uh, inscriptions uh, on it about Clive's life, his association with, with, with Shropshire, uh, and this is a picture of, of, of one of these, these, uh, these uh, slate uh, images. Again, showing, I think, this, pic this statue and Clive's reputation is very much uh, being discussed uh, today. And then from India as well, I think there's a lot of questions about the role of the East India Company. This is a TV advert from India um, for a product called uh, Rajni Ganda, Panparag, which is a chewing product, absolutely disgusting, lots of teeth and people spit it out and it's lots of red stains across the streets of India. Absolutely disgusting. And here you have this corporate executive, nice pink-striped suit, offering this Panparag to his Indian, his, his, his British uh, colleagues. He has just taken over the East India Company. Uh, you can see this uh, English gentleman or European gentleman here with the, the Hindu red uh, ticker. The, t the, uh, the, um, the TV advert is very interesting. You have this tycoon driving around at docks. Uh, he sees a building saying East India Company. He asks his driver to stop. And he said, I want to take over this company. They ruled us for 200 years and now it's our turn. Thank you very much. So please, questions. And I'd like to actually you to tell me all the tidbits about Clive and the local history, because I don't know anything about that. Any questions or... So the same people essentially moved over. Although there's a lot of sort of revolving door, and there was a lot of um, tension actually because the company had its own private army, mm -hmm. uh, and there was the uh, British army, and actually a lot of the company soldiers didn't want to merge with the British. But British when did that merge with the private? 1850. Because I know that a lot of people fought in Crimea. Right. Well, they missed. Well, they Well, I mean, I don't know. Yes, I mean, they would have been, pre yeah, that's right. So they would have been previously company trunk. They may still have been known as such, but they were now part of the British Empire. Yeah. yeah. So that would have been a phased process. And you also mentioned Wellesley. Yep. Wellesley. Yeah. In relationship to the East India Company. That's right. Private Army. Yeah. Is that where he started? He's, he's, yeah, he's, well, one of, his, one of his operations there. So that war, he, I think he was probably a British Army soldier. Yeah. He was a British Army soldier. So it was a mixed British army, but he gave he sort of became a known as a capable general uh, in India, which is why Napoleon called him the separate general. Thank you. Thank you.
Very interesting, very, very timely actually. So, so that came, I, I suppose, in the 1850s or so. So, when the company was acting as, uh, as the ruler, uh, and although it was forbidden by law to take more land, it was very, very land hungry. Um, and so, it would often, with neighboring territories, um, ask them, require them to take their protection. Uh, and then they would swallow them up. And the doctrine of lapse is, if you did not have a legitimate heir, that ruler's right to rule would go and it would be absorbed into the company's, uh, company's lands. And that particularly was one of the triggers for the Indian Mutiny, particularly for a, 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 a principality called Jansi, um, where an um, adopted son of the, the, the ruler, the prince of Jansi, had been accepted by the company, but then they changed their mind and said, no, 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 he wasn't uh, a, a blood relative, uh, and therefore we're going to take it over. And that led to an uprising by the Queen of Jansi, the Rani of Jansi, and she's seen as the sort of the Joan of Arc of India. In fact, I've uh, helped in a recent film, which is about her, her life, called uh, Sword and Scepter. Mm -hmm. Just going Sorry? That's a topic from the George Donald Fraser novel. Is it? Oh, right, okay. Is it good? Yes, it is. <laughs> okay. Very good. Very good. Thank you. Yeah, good. Yes, please. I think Calcutta uh, uh, was described by Rudyard Kipling as the armpit of India. Right. I've heard that expression. And there, uh, there are still some very fine buildings uh, put up by the East India Company. Yep. I'm thinking of the Writer Building, That's right. for example, yep. which are still I recall, very well maintained yep, yep. even into this century. Yep. Uh, and the Victoria Monument and so on, and the right. and what happened. So right. the imprint of the Calcutta, yeah. the East India Company in Calcutta, is still there to be seen. That's right. On reflection and looking at the march of time in history, yeah. how does um, India now perceive the um, legacy of the East India Company? In terms mm. of the infrastructure that they brought to the continent, yep. the railways, the administration, the English language, right. and so on. Can you yep. comment on that? Yeah, no, I think it's, it's, it's an interesting question. I mean, I, I think um, what I found is the East India Company is, is like a motif for um, foreign control and underhand dealings, I would say, generally. There's not much sort of hatred, or as we know, many of us know Indians. I mean, there's no sort of particular fuss uh, about it. But actually, um, it's often used as a, as a way of describing sort of foreign uh, control and, and so on. Um, there, there has been a number of books recently by Indian, Indians, I think, reflecting more about the cost of empire, not just the East India Company, but the sort of Raj that continued after that until uh, in independence. But there's, um, I don't think there's any particular bitterness or, 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 or anything. There was actually a debate a few years ago uh, on this between some some of the other people some Brits on that. Sorry, it's back. Yeah. Um, you showed us a statue in 1912. Yeah. For the rehabilitated Do you think it deserves rehabilitation? Because looking back with 
And even at the time, it was our standards now. Yeah. It, it was a pretty horrible thing that was going on. And he was a pretty awful character in terms of enriching himself. Right. And becoming an opium addict and various other things. Yeah. So I think I think it's right. It's interesting that it took 150 years or so, just under 150 years, for that statue to be put up. As you say, he was not particularly loved at this time. Um, there is a big debate about statues, as we know, um, roads and, and all the rest of it. Nobody's really focused on on this one yet. Actually, to your question, one of the things that has happened in India is a lot of the street names have changed, and a lot of the statues, particularly in Delhi of royal statues have been sort of taken up and parked outside the city, in this sort of wasteland outside the city. So I, I mean, I sort of thought, well, should we just take down the statue and put it in, this, in, a, in a museum? Or should we maybe balance it up with something else? So you'd have a statue or something else alongside it. But I think uh, at the moment, it's, it's uh, the story around the base is a story from 1911 um, and, and so on, which is fine for its time, it was telling the story. But I think probably we might want to reflect on something else. So we could put it, we could take it down. But I think actually, sort of leave it there. It was put there, but maybe you put another uh, another statue alongside it. I mean, not so much the statue. Yeah. But is he a man who deserves rehabilitation, or was is there nothing to rehabilitate? Well, he's such an awful character. Well, I mean, I, I think again, uh, I, I can't. I mean, his story. I mean, I think many many consequences of what he did. I mean, he never actually, I think, actually killed people directly. I mean, he was, yeah, but not in his hands, yeah. Um, he, but yeah, I mean, he's, he's probably the greatest corporate rogue in British history. So, uh, yeah. Was he any worse than the Indian princes at the time? Well, yeah. well, exactly. No, exactly. I mean, uh, he was probably, probably not. Probably not. Yeah. But um, yeah. Pirates. That's right. So they're all pirates. Really. That's right. So, so, so exactly. So, so I, I think it's it's a very sort of complex history, um, and um, I think particularly um, creation of an empire for many people is a very very good thing, um, and, and, and so on. Um, he again, I don't think he's a particularly evil person. His acts have many consequences, um, and I think you could say some of his acts probably at that time were not seen to be particularly extraordinary but sort of taking a presence and so on. But I think even he overstepped the mark a little bit. Um, I think people thought he'd just gone a little bit too far. Yeah, thanks. Well, the uh, company obviously had to vote yards, shipyards, all this commission, it's yeah. vessels. When it comes to arming them, I mean, obviously the British Army has its own rich armories and arsenals yeah. and so forth. Did private companies produce their own weapons, or was there? A, did they buy them off the government, our government, or was there an international arms trade? I mean, could anybody start, start building cannons and things? I don't know. Actually, I don't know. I also don't know. <laughs> it's I just wondered if they, if there was a sort of you know, they bought them off the British government. I mean, how, how goes the British I, government? I don't know. You supplying the weaponry, if you like. I mean, I'm sure they bought from they bought from similar places. Yeah. Um, it's interesting question. I mean, I, I just focus on it as a, as a company, yeah. but it's an interesting question. Yeah. Can I just ask when did the India company set up Haley Brewing? And was Haley Brewing, I think, the 1920s? I'm not sure. But was that the people they trained? Were they the ones who became the ICS? Yeah. 
So Haleyfield, I think, was set up in late 18th century. One of its first sort of, uh, professors was Thomas Malthus, who is known as a person who talks about population and so on. And they were to train the, yeah, the civil service, because actually it was now, as, as you know, quite right, as the company was moving from being a trading to more an administrative, they were the cargo of people for that. That's right. Yeah. So they didn't have a military arm for this training and They had one in a cadet school in Croydon. In Croydon. 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 Very And thanks for the question. I mean, what, what I find about the East India Company is that because its story is so long uh, and it did so many things, depending on what you're fascinated about, you can get everywhere. If you're fascinated in military history, you can go there. Fascinated in fashion, in, 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 in literature, you can find lots of people associated with that. In art, in, in, in geography, in contracts, and so on. So it's, a, it's an extraordinary story. So, um, yeah, I find it fascinating. <coughs> well, as I say, it was this um, having uh, travelled in particular India and Bangladesh, uh, and, and actually I was I was working, as I say, looking in the textile industry and so on, and it was just coming up in conversation, um, and I thought, well, this sounds an interesting thing. I'll find out. And I went to work in the city of London, and as I say, as I said. Um, found, I expected this little blue plaque, and there was nothing there. And it seemed that there was a little bit of invisibility um, in, in London uh, about that. So I wanted to find out more about it. What, I, what, I, what then became very interesting for me, I think, was how uh, obviously it's very different times, different uh, rules, different values, and so on. But some of the things we see today appeared then, the sort of share price bubbles and behaviors and so on. Uh, and also some of the characters we, I think, still look to in that time, Adam Smith in economics, uh, Edinburgh, conservative uh, fellow and so on, um, John Stuart Mill, they were also involved in this story. So it wasn't just a sort of narrow corporate story. They did tell us a story about uh, the, the economy as a whole. And, and Klein has always been there uh, in this story. And now I'm in his church, which is great. So thank you. Interestingly, well, for me at least, um, I first heard of Clive of India when I was aged about nine. Mm -hmm. And I was a choir boy in my local parish church. We had these little books about famous English people yeah. to keep us quiet in the room. <laughs> <laughs> I distinctly remember reading about him the fact that he was supposed to climb. Yeah, the phrase was he was addicted to fighting. Yeah. 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 Very good. So if anybody wants, I, I've got some of the books here, if anybody wants to, to get them, uh, they're £10 each. Um, otherwise, thanks very much for coming. Thank you.